You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. And here to talk with me about the assembled Avengers is the one and only John Mills. Matt, Matt, I'm going to need you to talk up. The uh, The cell phone reception here in Stanconia is pretty weak. Uh, there's something interfering with uh, with my signal right now. So if, if you could uh, if you could just speak up, that'd be great. Oh, son of a. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no, that's where you're just supposed to say language. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Uh, yes. Well, no. See, that's that's explained by the delay for the uh, ray shielding around my fortress here. Oh, that man. goes away real easily. But, you know, what are you going to do? That's true. Well, we are going to uh, be diving into the second full Avengers movie here, Age of Ultron, also directed by Joss Whedon. And before we do that, we just want to thank you, everybody. For listening um it's great to have you here in the 602 clubs assembling avengers uh make sure you're subscribed so you're getting the podcast as soon as it drops uh if you like the show here please do give us a star rating review over on apple Podcasts. we'd really appreciate that we'll also read it out on the show uh and of course you can make sure you're subscribed um anywhere you get your podcasts because that's where we can be had you can also find us on all the social media platforms out there. Uh, of course, we're on Twitter, at The 602 Club. We're on Instagram, at The 602 Club TFM. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook with the entire network, facebook.com slash trekfm. There's the listeners-only discussion group you can join as well to talk to listeners from all over the world. And there's also trek.fm where you can see everything that we're doing. And if you like the network and you like the shows that we do here, please consider going to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you could be part of our team. And make sure that all of these ad-free podcasts keep coming to you each and every week. So, John, we're at Age of Ultron, and it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Joss Whedon was going to be back, but they decided that they wanted him back, especially with the reception Avengers got. And this one, interestingly enough, there's some behind-the-scenes drama that goes on, and part of that is there are some things that the studio wasn't super excited about in this film. They didn't love the dream sequences, uh, and the scene with Thor went on much farther and longer um, than we get in the movie, which, I mean, since I've not seen it, it might have actually helped that scene make more better sense for the entire overarching view of the film and then what Thor does. But I thought it was really interesting that they have a great experience apparently with him for the first movie. And this movie, uh, it seems as though things behind the scenes weren't quite as copacetic. Jock my memory. Were we at the stage where everything was earning a billion dollars or was Avengers the billion dollar baby. And then we never quite achieved that through the second phase. And then age of Ultron, obviously I think 
that would have contributed to them saying, you know what, let's bring Whedon back. He got us to a billion last time. Let's break the billion barrier again this time. Am I am I correct in my thinking? Because I'm pretty sure Guardians didn't hit a billion. I'm pretty sure that Iron Man 3 didn't hit a billion. Winter Soldier didn't hit a billion. And uh, uh, the Dark World definitely did not hit a billion right. dollars. Like, they all did well, but they didn't mm-hmm. achieve the same success as right. Avengers. So it makes exactly perfect sense from a business standpoint to say, well, what's missing from these movies? Joss Whedon and the other Avengers. Well, let's get the other Avengers and let's have Joss Whedon mm-hmm. come in. We will make a billion dollars again. So Yeah, and they and would. I, I mean, I, it, it went on right. to be another billion dollar film for them. Right. Which, yeah, that... You know, as we go forward as well, that's going to become the crescendo point. That's going to become the point where a billion dollars becomes the accepted measure by which uh, any movie is a success, uh, which Mm -hmm. is the true. That's the true dining on ashes moment for the movie industry. Uh, You know, even pre global meltdown in 2020, there's. Everybody was talking about the fact that without these billion-dollar movies, the industry was in a lot – the movie theater industry was in a lot of trouble. And so, you know, this is setting the stage for the first problem. Movie theaters don't have the, the, you know, the the strategy to sustain them. And so, you know, coming out – you know, and I know that's a rabbit hole and everything like that. I think the more important question is – how excited were you for Age of Ultron? Was it something where you were really excited to go see it? Or was this something where you were like, okay, you know, I, I feel obliged to go see it? I mean, I think at this point, even back then, I was still looking forward to seeing this. And, and mainly because, you know, my favorite character uh, from the Avengers is going to be in this movie, Captain America. And so I'm, I'm, definitely looking forward to it and you know i i definitely remember though that this you know not necessarily living up to the expectations that i had gone in with you know i think the first movie had set those expectations we had gotten some movies like winter soldier that had really i think raised the bar for me and then you know after that nothing quite hit that bar and and one of the things i wanted to ask you um because I think this is is interesting for this film is that Joss Whedon specifically is looking to some sequels for the milieu he wants to play in. And what he's looking to is like the Empire Strikes Back and, you know, which obviously makes sense. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, if you asked him, he would probably say something like Star Trek 2 uh, as well as uh, The Godfather Part 2 where it's darker, you know, we're kind of putting these characters through the paces. It's it's it it feels like you know there's there's a lot more at stake, you know, and so I wanted to ask you just kind of about that. I mean, uh, this movie does I think have a darker tone to it than obviously mm-hmm. the first Avengers, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, uh, I think we both thought that Winter Soldier worked well with its darker tone and very serious nature. Mm-hmm. How do you I mean, how do you feel like that works here in this movie? Does it, it come off the way that it I think Whedon wants it to, or is it too much of a mixed bag between the humor that 
being added and this dark tone and and does it all mesh together as well? No, I don't think it meshes together particularly well. Um, not to tip my hand, I was super excited for Age of Ultron because I thought that what I saw in the trailers was interesting. It was exciting. It was oh wow, look at that. That's um you know James Spader. That's a really interesting take on Ultron that that I, looks like I'm going to get. And I remember those trailers showing the first Ultron walking out. And thinking, oh wow, that is that is really cool looking. That's a super cool spin on the the way that Ultron looked in the comic books, um, and you know, very frightening, honestly. And again, you know, I, Phase Two, what I had seen of Phase Two up to this point, I love Guardians, I love Winter Soldier. When I saw Iron Man Three, I loved it. You know, we know that I didn't see Dark World for quite some time, but I went into this. I was like, well, if they figured out the solo movies that well, my gosh, this is going to be amazing what they're going to do with it. And um, the darker tone, what's really interesting, what really jumped out at me then and jumps out at me now is. And I know there are going to be people that roll their eyes, but this is one of those movies that acts as a calling card for the fact that Joss Whedon doesn't really have a visual style. Because the visual style in this is so different from the first Avengers, it's jarring. And so I have to sit there and say, with my my uber hypercritical film eye or whatever, or, you know, overly critical if some people, you know, want to come at it from that angle. I don't see anything here where I'm like, oh, that's a Joss Whedon movie. It just looks like, okay, well, we're supposed to make it darker, so we're going to desaturate the colors a little bit. We're going to make it the filters a little bit darker, and we're going to... I, I mean, I, I hate what they do with the action again in this one. The frame rate nonsense is is crazily done and the camera movement is eh. so you know uh, you know be that as it may i know that's a really long-winded way to go about to say that um it just this movie doesn't have an mm -hmm. imprint it's a tv episode in the sense that there there does there's craft but no art to it that i can detect yeah i mean i noticed specifically that this movie and one of the things that we had kind of dinged the first movie for was the very bright nature of the film and i liked that this film mm -hmm. felt more consistent in its visual tone uh and, and it didn't feel overly bright and you know overly saturated i liked that uh, i think that was a plus for this movie for me i think you know, uh, the more serious nature and dealing with some, I, I would say, much more interesting thematic elements. Very interesting in this movie as well. And um, we'll talk a little bit about those in a minute, but that's another plus. I think the thing that didn't necessarily work for me is there were too many moments where jokes were needed, but they were added. Mm -hmm. And that took away from many of those more serious moments. Um, and then there was, and there were other places where 
humor I thought worked really well. Most of it actually coming from Hawkeye. Um, and, and mainly because it's like gallows humor. And um, mm-hmm. I think that works much better than the, you know, ridiculous quips uh, that you get over and over again, um, even from Ultron, which I guess it makes sense. You know, Ultron is the child of Tony Stark. So, you know, bad quips are, are part of the thing. Um, but I, I think it's, I think what's fascinating is, you know, the movie I think starts off relatively well in a great opening action sequence, you know, kind of bringing the whole team together and, and then, mm. and then mm. I, I would say it just, it meanders a little bit. Uh, and then I think it has a really overly long ending. Uh, and so it, it, the pacing of this film is the thing that I'm, I'm really going to ding it for. Um, and I think that's the thing that I, I was really frustrated with in this at rewatch specifically is that, again, Joss Whedon can't end a film without spending 45 minutes on it. It just it's too long. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with this. But at the same time, what I do disagree with is that the opening battle is good. I think the opening battle is weirdly frenetic in in uh, an atonal sort of way, a visually atonal sort of way. The the compositing, even back then, I think we're seeing our first indication that Disney's going to start trying to do things that it can farm out on the cheap farmed out on the cheap because i think there are de- and i on my tv this time again because it's not on the big screen and e- even though on the big screen i was like ah that doesn't look fantastic mm-hmm. sitting closer to a television this time i was like boy some of those shots look bad in terms of the the composite sure. no i can agree and, with you especially that first battle uh in the snow and, it just is like ooh, yeah and just to double back opening the way that it does emphasizes the fact that guardians of the galaxy should not have occurred right before this. No, like that's no. even a rhythmic mistake. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it should have been the black widow movie hundred percent. I mean, that's what yeah. should have come there. And what's really crazy is I'm sitting here talking about the, the, the photography of it is the fact that it's the same director of photography as guardians of the galaxy as well as Captain Marvel, apparently the the Eternals as well, which I haven't seen yet. But thinking of Guardians of the Galaxy visually and the way that moved, the way that was shot, the way that looked, and then Avengers Age of Ultron, am I off base in saying that this? it is in terms of editing, pace, and everything like that? It's just, this is just a jumble. It just feels slapped together. Um with, with with the way everything that it is. And I right. and the thing yeah. is I my intent is not to like sit here and curb stomp on Age of Ultron because I know that the movie has its defenders and there are plenty of people who say oh it's not as bad as its reputation sort of thing. But watching it this time for all the parts that I liked it really felt like a chore because to speak to your point about the 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 tone and the the pacing being up and down I'm going to put it right out there on the table. I want to get your thoughts on the Hulkbuster armor fight in 
unnamed African country, or rather, as the screen describes it, Africa. Any other country gets a full name. Stankonia gets a full name. But Africa is a country instead of a continent in this movie, I guess. So, fine. But, and just so everybody knows, yes, I'm calling Sokovia Stankonia. It's a reference to an album from Outkast, who you may remember, you know, with Andre 3000 and everything like that. So, it's an old joke that I've had for quite some time. Anyway, Hulkbuster armor fight. Give me your thoughts on it. I mean, I understand why they have it in the movie because it's the thing that it, things just keep adding up for the Hulk character so that we're going to have him go off at the end, right? I think one of the... I, it's just one of the things in this movie where I feel like it's too long and it's another place where we're pretending to care about civilians but at the same time not caring about civilians. We like wreck a third of the city and then we're we're gonna go oh let's see how fast we can buy this building like you know it's um it's silly uh i i don't i I, again i get why they do the fight i just don't think that it's as exciting as they want it to be personally like I, I just, mm-hmm. and exciting. It, it's nowhere near exciting. It, yeah. it feels so. I remember even at the time fidgeting in my seat and saying, "Why is this here? All it is is to set up the Hulkbuster armor." And fine, that toy is kind of neat, and it exists in the comics, but it's just spinning tires. It's right. just there. Well, and, and I mean, again, this is a place where I think you can have the fight have the same impact and it not take so much time on screen. Let me throw this out there uh, to you. And this is this is where I'm really going to lose friends, Matt. I'm going to put this out here and we might even lose listeners. All I could think about, and we all know from Snyder Cuts how I've I've come around in my thinking on certain things. All I could think about was the Hulkbuster armor fight in Age of Ultron actually made me appreciate the Battle of Metropolis and Man of Steel because that at least had emotional stakes in it. This is just wanton destruction and noise for no other reason than to introduce a toy. Whereas I I look at the city-destroying... Battle of Metropolis, and it's Clark fighting for his home. It's somebody trying to destroy the literal world. It's seeing the people directly affected by everything. And I look at these two things, and it's almost as if Whedon was trying to take a dig on Man of Steel. Of course he was. Which is always thrown against the first Avengers. And it it backfires. Mm -hmm. It completely backfires on him. Well... And I, I don't think it just backfires because, look, again, I don't think the fight is useless or just to introduce a toy. I do think that there's a, a – I personally can see the reason why you do the fight for the element of telling the story of Hulk who's going to want to leave at the end. And we leave that ambiguous in, as to where he goes so they can you know set up basically Planet Hulk movie, uh, <clears throat> Thor Ragnarok. And hmm. – 
So that makes sense, right? Like, but again, I think the scene is just longer than it needs to be to make that point. And like you said, it does become one of the things to which it's digging at a movie and later on the movie is going to suffer because they they elongate the process of caring about civilians so much that it makes the movie much longer than it needs to be to get to its point. Um, and it's that final battle, which I think, like the Hulkbuster fight, it is 20 minutes of this movie, it feels like. And mm-hmm. and honestly, it doesn't need to be that long. It needs to be like 10 at most. I, because I'm going to offer... it's just too yeah. much, you know? Like, and And it's like... You're beating a dead horse by the time you're beating a dead Hulk. You're beating a dead Ultron. Sure. <laughs> you know, right. by the time you get to the, it's like, we get it. We get your point and, and they just keep doing it. And it just, it, I think one of the reasons that fans didn't respond to this movie as well and haven't liked it as much is, is that we, audiences don't like being talked down to and when you can tell that you're being talked down to or told kind of like what to think over and over again we don't respond well to that let me ask it i still contend that the whole hulkbuster thing is to introduce a toy whether that's whedon's intent i don't know but it's definitely disney's intent for giving him the bullet point and i agree with you that it could have been done in a much cleaner shorter more efficient storytelling way. But then again, we're we're acolytes of Lucas sure. and we're all about efficient storytelling. Faster and more intense. So, hey man, it works 100% of the time. And what I want to go into in terms of storytelling is something that really drove me a little bit to distraction this time is as I was thinking about it, the Ultron arc, there's so much stuffed into this there are all these rabbit holes that undercut Ultron's character. I wanted more time with Ultron because he was interesting. He was an interesting villain. But he's never given enough time on screen. And I still don't quite know why he bothers with Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. They go in to, for instance, intimidate Ulysses Claw. But Ultron didn't need them to. He could just waltz in and do whatever he wanted to. He's he's literally set up as just invincible. Mm-hmm. So why does he have them going around anyway? Yeah, I think he's only there. I mean, I think at that point they're only there because of what he's going to do Um with the Avengers, you know, he's going to have her mess with their minds, you know. Sure. So, sure. I get I but I I do I I completely get your point because you you do create this villain who's so overpowering in the sense of what they can do. I mean, when you create a villain that is literally the internet, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. and then has control of anything and could do anything because of that power, it's it's very difficult um, to see why, you know, he would need anybody else and or want 
anybody else, um, you know, with mm -hmm. him. And and then, you know, I, the only thing I think that is semi-interesting in it is that when you learn that he's just using them because he doesn't care about humanity. Like, I guess they're... My guess is that they're using them as the the when the pivot point happens where you realize there is nothing altruistic about Ultron whatsoever. He's just a maniacal maniac as a robot. And so I get yeah. why you have characters there. But again, what I think one of the things that I think when you ask that question, there's just so much going on in this movie. There's so many characters into I to try and introduce two new characters in a movie where you're trying to also tell the stories of like Captain America and Thor and Iron Man and Hawkeye. And, you know, you're trying to introduce all these important elements to all of these characters lives. It's very difficult to not feel like you're just being pulled every which way. And when you have these two new characters, then it gets really difficult because you do just almost feel like I don't know where to put my emotional energy in this movie. Like there's so many places that are asking for emotional yeah. energy. You know, the fight between Cap and Tony that started here with the way in which they think about things and it it's it begins something that's going to continue. The emotional uh, uh fragility of hulk and his relationship with black widow we'll talk about that in a minute uh you know and and then you introduce this idea of hawkeye and his family and then you add on top of that two new characters who now have this connection then with stark and everything it's just it's it is a really difficult thing because I don't have enough um, um, emotional resonance to be able to try and identify with all of these characters and or care about them all. And, it, you know, I feel like this is one place where the original Avengers does a much better job of compacting important um, thematic elements to make it all flow much better. And And so it's like everything's kind of building on top of each other in a way that doesn't make me feel like I'm being pulled in too many directions. That was a really long-winded answer, but yeah. Not 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 really, not really because while while you were I, I I'm listening to you, I I realize that what we're dancing around here is the fact again about storytelling efficiency and that there are so many moments where they could make the choice instead of feeling obligated to bring in Ulysses Claw or have the vibranium and create vision and have the mind stone and have all of these big battle scenes. You mentioned, Oh, it's supposed to be like the empire strikes back. Well, what's the empire strikes back strength in all honesty. It's strength is the fact that it flips the script and you have your big battle at the beginning. It's the same reason that revenge of the Sith works so well. You have your big battle at the beginning and then it whittles down to mm -hmm. a tiny little personal battle, which, just to and add the fate of everything is on this personal battle. What you're saying there, I, I just want to say real quickly, that's exactly what Feige actually wanted when they first started the movie. He wanted this to be a smaller, more personal movie, and it kind of blew into this much bigger thing. So what you're saying is actually what Kevin Feige had planned at the beginning until what we got. 
which is exactly why I can understand it happen it 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 ends up the way that it is. This movie has flex written all over it then. Where Whedon says, no, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to get. And Feige and Disney are saying, no, no, this is what we want. But you don't want anything to go wrong behind the scenes mm-hmm. on the movie you want to make a billion dollars on. So you can't have a big fight. You can't have a public row. You just got to find a way to compromise and get things out the door. And that, I guess, is the word that I think of when I look at Age of Ultron is even back when it first I saw this with Craig the whole thing felt just like compromise mm-hmm. it felt like studio notes versus director who wanted his thing and it just winds up in essence in all honesty it winds up like a bigger scale dark world mm-hmm. Where you can just tell mm-hmm. that there were two different impulses yeah. and they just never meshed. Well, and I would say on top of that, that I think as we're talking about all of these like story ideas and pacing issues and all of that kind of thing, it does feel like a plot point movie. Like we're just giving mm-hmm. you plot points that are important because we have to have a reason for Vision to be introduced and the Mind Stone. We have to have a reason for... Uh, Scarlet Witch to be introduced so she can be in later films. Uh, We have to have Thor have this moment so that'll help explain why he makes the choice to do this. You know, like there's so many. We have to have a Hulkbuster fight so that Hulk will decide that he doesn't feel like he's safe to be on this planet anymore. Like it's all of these moments to which it's like we have to create reasons for plot points to happen instead of somebody sitting down specifically and saying, okay, what is the story that we are trying to tell for the Avengers second adventure together? And let's flow from that before it's like, oh no, we have all of these things that we have to do. Um, And it feels like Kevin Feige from what I read, that was his desire was this to be a much more personal thing. And I, I think, a slightly darker kind of more gritty tale for their second adventure together. But it just gets blown out of proportion with too many things vying for your attention. And we're never able to really focus because, you know, I do think that there's an actual interesting thematic element here that just kind of gets glossed over. Speaking of glossing over, that's a great segue. Back when I first watched it, and especially this time, I want to ask you, do you at all get the sense that Whedon essentially didn't really want to pay attention to the movies that came between Avengers and Age of Ultron, and was just making a sequel to Avengers without really caring about what had happened in between? Case in point. Tony feels like he gets regressed a little bit in order to give him an arc in this movie. Mm -hmm. Although, does he really have an arc? He doesn't really move in this movie. Natasha's history with Cap is erased in favor of her history Mm -hmm. with Clint. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. Well, and and her Her relationship with uh, Bruce Banner. Banner. Right, which comes out of left field. 
and is couched within this somewhat interesting idea that Hawkeye just is so private that he has a family and nobody knows about it. And do you get that sense? I mean, I get the sense that, that in a, in a way Whedon just didn't care what happened in between. And he Mm -hmm. just said, no, 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 I'm making my movie and it's a sequel to my movie. I do feel like some of that happened specifically, I think with the black widow character. And I also think it has to do with, like you said, the Tony character and, and even the captain America character a little bit. Um, because I mean, the biggest thematic element of this movie is what fear makes us do. And Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, and that's what weeding is going for when he's trying to, you know, show you the, the, you know, dreams and visions that, that get caused in these characters heads, um, by, uh, Scarlet Witch. Which is interesting, right? But the problem is, is that, at least for Tony, he's already dealt with that in Iron Man 3. He's dealt with his demon of being fearful. And in fact, the whole movie is about him moving forward and not being fearful anymore. Um, And letting go of that fear. Letting go of the need to be Iron Man and feel like he needs to control everything. And yet, Mm -hmm. we bring him and... (laughs) Basically, we create the biggest villain in the MCU universe by allowing Tony to be so fearful, be so afraid that he can't see through the lies of Scarlet Witch that he's not going to be the one who didn't do enough to save everyone. And like, it's like, look, I know Tony's a narcissist and everything, but to give him this kind of savior complex seems a little bit ridiculous. And again, well, it... It is frustrating because from now on, Tony is going to be much less sympathetic because he's never going to be on the right side again until we get to, like, you know, Infinity War and Endgame. Like, he just isn't. Um, He's going to make all the wrong choices from now on, and it's going to be very frustrating. And it's because this movie kind of negates what they did in Iron Man 3 and regresses yeah. him to a point and then never lets him grow again. You know what I really hate about this whole conversation is that a lot of times I come into conversations like this with you and I, I hope that sometimes I act in this same way and I come out with like a slightly more positive take on everything. But coming out of the viewing and then having this conversation with you is sort of reinforcing some of the negative, more negative reactions that I had mm-hmm. uh, this time around. I mean, the first time I watched the movie, I noticed that there was a specific female extra that the camera spent an awful lot of time on to the point where my friends and I who saw it together said, well, somebody really liked that actress a whole lot because she's really featured a bit in crowd scenes and stuff like that. And it's one of the Sokovia extras. and Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it bothered me then, and it bothers me now, because it really, I think, is so indicative of the lack of focus. If you're going to make a movie that is supposed to be really 
focused on the dark journey of the soul of your main character or characters, you should have something as tightly focused, although it still has spectacle, as Winter Soldier. And you should be able to tease all of that stuff out without being exploitative or indulgent to the point mm-hmm. where I'm watching a movie and I say, why, why do I keep seeing her in, in focus on these, on these shots? What's, what's, what's happening? Or why is this Hulk fight taking so long? Yeah. Why is, to the point where I don't yeah. care who wins. Why is the end of this movie and, and, lasting and, forever? And that that's also really something that bothers me a great deal. Is the ending of this movie is so grandiose with a, with the I still don't like by this point I stopped caring. Why is the city flying again? Right? Or is yeah. that the whole country well, of Stankonia yeah, that's flying? Or like, like it's one of those they things. They call it basically the country uh anyway, this this main city that he's turned into a vibranium uh bomb, basically, that it, it's going to get to a certain height and it's going to be like the impact of an asteroid and destroy everything on Earth. So I mean, you know, it's I'm sure it's fine. I know. Well, okay, so so let's let, let's steer away from that. I do eventually want to get to positive things that we yeah. really enjoy about it. Okay, yeah, but, but but first, before we get there, mm-hmm. I want to come back to Ultron. And as much as I think the the movie doesn't give him enough focus, as Spader's doing something interesting, but the movie doesn't help him. Mm-hmm. I I really I've hated this since day one. And it drove me absolutely up the wall this time again. The fact that Ultron has lips and teeth like a Michael oh, Bay Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much that I can't even put words on it. At the time, I even dubbed the movie Age of Transformers Lips. Because it's just as grating as when Michael Bay had Optimus Prime have lips to speak mm-hmm. because why there's no point it's it's a dumb affectation and if ultron wanted to become more human okay that makes sense yeah but he hates but humans he didn't right it, it just it's so weird so but but let's not end on a down note. Well, I feel like we've been down so I much do, in this. I do feel like, though, uh, you know, before we find any kind of positivity in this movie, um, I do think we need to talk about the fact that, and we've, I think we've been very clear in this this podcast that we um, both like the character of Natasha. Well, we were completely on her side and loved the performance that was given in Winter Soldier. And since that point, we are continuing to make a joke of the idea that she will not get her <laughs> first uh, movie until later on when it deserved to be here um, or mm-hmm. where Guardians was. But in this movie, I do think we need to talk about the treatment of her in this film because it bothered me that Natasha's only screen time really is this weird relationship with Banner 
mm. that kind of comes out of nowhere, especially after yep. the relationship she had with Cap and um and a very good relationship, right? You know, there's nothing weird about it. It was just a great relationship. But this coming out of nowhere, being the one who can like soothe him, give him his right? lullaby, it's super creep. And then to focus only basically on the fact that she can't have children and that makes her a monster? Like, what the heck is that all about? Yeah, sorry, adoption. That's really wild. Yeah. But I think that, um, well, I, I mean, I, I think it's just Whedon incapable of communicating the, the subtlety because I don't think he's saying that she's a monster because she can't have children. Well, I even think though he's she calls herself saying that a she monster. Realized, <laughs> But but she calls herself a monster because of everything human that was removed from her. Mm-hmm. And that she sure, used sure. Banner as a way to reclaim that humanity. Yeah. But the what's weird about it is on the negative side, I don't know where the Natasha Banner thing came from. It's a big what the hell. But at the same time, I do think that Scarlett Johansson and... Mark Ruffalo actually play the scenes really well. And so it's interesting. It's almost like this artifact of something. If they, if they could have lifted this from the movie and given Natasha her own movie where say Hulk had left the Avengers Mm -hmm. and she winds up having a very intimate movie with just him and her where they're like a winter soldier for the Hulk and she's in it. And so you could even see, to borrow a phrase from a director that I love, it's like poetry, it rhymes. You see her, but the focus is on her. And we learn about her as reflected through Hulk, who's already had his standalone movie. Mm-hmm. And so so it would become almost like a, a winter soldier, but she's the main character. Mm-hmm. Sure. That, there was enough elements in here that I could have seen that spun off yep. and turned into yep. that. But it never does, so far as I know. Well, and I mean, I, I just think about how great it would have been to have had a film that dove into her past and everything so that all of those scenes were much more resonant when they are brought back to her mind again, you know, and this creation into who she's been made to be and who she's been trying to fight against now since she left, you know, I think that would have been great to see. Um, And... I just look. I'm not a, I'm not a raging feminist, you know. But I just feel like she gets sidelined for no good reason into a story to which makes her only contribution one where she's lamenting the fact that she can't have children instead of focusing on all the great things that are about her. And look. I think it's a great storyline if it's in her own movie where she's coming to grips with everything that the Red Room did to her, but not when this is the only screen time that she gets in films. Like, And she will only get to be a sidelined character and really until, like... Endgame, right? Or, or you know, and, and Infinity War, like, where she becomes much more integral to the story. Here, it's just like... This is all we're going to do with this character? There's almost an interesting psychiatric, psychological sort of thing 
that you could tease out about maybe Whedon in the context of this movie and the way he treats his female characters. And again, I'm not somebody that gets on a soapbox about these things. Life's a very complex and interesting place to be with a lot of weird nuance to it. It's never just a straight either or, and it's always got a lot of layers to everything. And I can't possibly know what's in another person's mind. But looking at the way that the female characters in this movie behave, it's a little weird in the sense that all we ever get are these odd, almost Oedipal moms confused with sexual desire characters in Scarlet Witch and in Black Widow where they're matronly with some characters, but the object of sexual desire to others. And it's, they're never allowed to pick a lane. Mm -hmm. And that's just odd. Mm -hmm. It's weird. And it's doubly weird because Natasha gets to pick that lane in winter soldier. Mm -hmm. And the lane makes sense. And she's an adult. Right. And she's complex. Well, it's an adult nuanced. relationship between the two of them too. Like it's complicated. Right. Right. But they're approaching each other as adults, mm -hmm. as opposed to there's this weird sort of thing going on with the the mommy and sexual thing going on with oh, yeah. Natasha yeah. and yeah. Bruce. And it I don't like that. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't feel right. It yeah. feels weird, man. Yeah. Um I mean, we've got to talk about a few more things, but one, I do think that the thing that I love most about this movie is probably Hawkeye. He's the most down-to-earth and really great character that we see. He's the only one that has a semi-normal life that we're introduced to, which, yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere, but, I mean, the way to describe it, the fact that he's, you know, he got into this life and he told... um fury that you know if i was going to be in this life my family had to be off the books completely um i love that he's a, a man who cares deeply about his family has a great relationship with his his wife you know and he's just i mean his humor was my favorite humor in the movie where he's like oh sure just leave me here i mean i i could do it i could do it right now nobody would know i could i could make it happen you know like I, there's something about Jeremy Renner. It's great. And then his relationship with the, um, Scarlet Witch is fantastic because like him talking to her, you know, he's treating her like an adult. He does well with kids. He, that fatherly right. side comes out in him, which is interesting because, you know, as we're recording this, the Hawkeye show is happening right now. And he's kind of having that same relationship with Kate Bishop it he's so good at that and so like to me like watching this movie again the thing i loved most was really seeing his character get time to shine on screen and he kind of is the person that is the only quote unquote normal one in this group you know and his wife's like they need you and you need them, you know, like you need them to help keep you alive because you're not a superhuman um, and they need you because you're just a normal human, basically. Uh, and it's yeah. it's 100 percent true. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, 
I, I don't know. It, it's so diff. It's so difficult. It's so difficult because there are so many things in this movie that make me want to like it, and there are so many things that I just can't get past. Mm-hmm. The stuff with Clint that makes me want to like it. Yeah. He does get yeah. great moments. You're you're absolutely right. That scene where he talks to Scarlet Witch, and it's basically saying, "All right, make your choice." Right here. Mm-hmm. You got to either do this or you got to do that. I can't make the choice for you, but figure it out. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't sit here and, and, and nursemaid you. I do think that there's a bit of a cheat in the movie where I don't I don't think Quicksilver was introduced for any other reason than to s- prevent Hawkeye from being yeah. killed. Yeah, that's basically it. And, well, and yeah. that's kind of and to hopefully give, you know, Scarlet Witch some resonance later on but no Uh, i completely agree with you so i think it's also because keep in mind at the time disney did not own fox so i think it was also a middle finger to uh 20 to 20th century fox Mm -hmm. for having an x-men movie where quicksilver was pretty cool yeah Um, because he's never great here compared to what he was in the x-men movies he's never given a lot to do you didn't see that coming terribly interesting yeah (laughs) so all right okay so 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 here we are. We've we've kind of rounded third. Wait a minute, sadly, hold on. We didn't talk about. Yeah, no, I was going to say. What, what, not the what, music. Bring it in. But, bring but it on we home. We didn't talk about it all. Bringing a huge character into the MCU, um, which is Vision. I mean, we didn't talk about like uh, giving this character life and now making him a part of the Avengers. Let me ask you this question. Right here, without looking it up. Why do you care about Vision in this movie? I mean, the only reason I end up caring about him is because he becomes the thing that helps them beat Ultron. That's pretty much it. And he's so powerful that I was left questioning at the time I first saw it and through this. Why would he even need the Avengers? He's literally, Mm -hmm. he's bigger than any hero they've introduced up to this point. And he's capable of just about, and he's basically Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, he's made out of vibranium. He's, so he's almost indestructible. There's nothing you can do to this guy. So he can phase through things for Pete's sake. They made him too powerful. Mm -hmm. There's no build here. Yeah, it's weird. It's crazy. I agree. He just blow things. Like, and I mean, it's I, I cool just, because it's Jarvis come to life, and I love Paul Bettany. All that's great. It's just, but I 100% agree with you. So let me throw this idea out at you. Wouldn't it have been so much more interesting if they'd found a way to, let's say, redeem or reconcile Ultron with his nobler beginnings to turn him into Vision hmm. and to find out, well, we have to work with him because he's at a bit like he's not born as vision mm-hmm. he's born as this guy could become something special but we've reduced him back down to an 18 year old basically we got to build mm-hmm. him back up and he's capable of great things in, in essence they're left with superman at the end mm-hmm. but superman as a teenager where you say okay the way we raise him is going to make a big difference to mm-hmm. what happens right yeah, I mean, I do think something like that could have been interesting, especially since, you know, he is Vision, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, he comes from 
basically because he is Jarvis. You know, he comes with Jarvis as well as this other program. And so to basically allow the vision part of him to win in the end would have been, mm-hmm. I think, a much more interesting thing. Um, and and look, so I mean, like I, a smaller personal yeah, struggle exactly. that has implications yeah. for the world. And I do think it is interesting here because I I don't hate the story idea and and the storyline in here of of Tony choosing to be the mad scientist and to play God, and of course you know Cap being against that. I think all that stuff, it's not terrible. And it works. But again, I think it's just one of those places where there's just too many thematic elements happening in this movie to really make it all congeal well uh, and is something that is much more understandable and um, really works in the end. And I think that's a frustration because, again, yeah, I absolutely love the scenes between especially Tony and Cap where they're arguing about you know, the creation of vision, it just, there's not enough time. It's weird because as we talked about all the pacing issues, it's like there's not enough time to actually devote to the important stuff. There's just a lot of like flash and bang too much of the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, And then Thor shows up and ends the conversation. Exactly, it's gone. So yeah, it's, it's weird. It uh, it's, it's just weird. So, how about music, John? Uh, Danny Elfman pairs with Brian no, Tyler. Doesn't Danny Elfman only get the credit because he uh, he he wrote the 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 main theme or something? Uh, like? Isn't it like tweaks, a John Williams John yeah, Powell he thing? Tweaks the main theme um, along with, and so I I don't know how much else he actually does in the soundtrack, but I mean he's on there with. You know it, and he writes some of the other. Actually, the other tr- he does write some of the tracks. So I mean, he it, it's like a forty sixty thing. It looks like as I'm looking at the soundtrack. So it's fine. There, there's nothing about the soundtrack that makes me want to listen to it outside of the movie. Yeah, seriously, yeah. like it, it's it's, it's fine. good. It, it it does its it does its thing. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think. That it does lack the power of the other soundtracks that we've had that were more powerful and, you know, felt, uh, you know, again, it's competent, but that doesn't make it great. And, you Mm -hmm. know, it it becomes something to which I I think don't think ever transcends the movie in the way that, you know, the original Avengers score did in the sense of creating a theme that really went with the, the Avengers and just being something really enjoyable. This is just kind of more of the same, but without, you know, anything that, like you said, really stands out to you. And you're like, oh, well, that was great. You know, like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, and that's really all I can say about it. Yeah, it's fine. Well, I also find it interesting. I think this is the last... uh Marvel movie that Tyler Bates works on. Mm, interesting. I don't think that he comes back. I, I think I think that he is gone from the Marvel Cinematic Universe after this. Uh, unless I'm ridiculously wrong, which happens. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I, I'm never wrong, really. I mean, you know, we know we all know that's true, right, Matt? No, uh, no. I, I'm pretty sure right. uh, Bates doesn't come back after this. 
doesn't come back. Yeah. As opposed to, again, the director of photography, he's all over the MCU. But just, I don't know, music-wise, I guess they still haven't found their muse, as it were. No, he will do so. uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. <laughs> so. But uh, will he? Yep. Wait a I'm minute. I'm looking no. at his his uh, page right now. So I'm looking at his page too. Yeah. How, wow, was Guardians of the Galaxy two just that long ago? Mm-hmm. That I missed yeah. it. All right, fine. He gets one more time. Yeah. Wait a minute, Tyler Bates, not Brian Tyler. Oh, Brian Tyler. Excuse me, Brian Tyler. You're right. Yeah. No, because this is because uh, this is. You're right. You're right. This is You're right. Brian Tyler. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I'm wrong. You're okay. right. Let it go. Um, oh no! Sorry. Isolating. Yes, making that yeah. my ringtone. Good thing you don't. Uh, making that my you don't. Yeah, you know, yeah. do the uh, editing anyway. Uh, no, you're yeah. right. I mean, uh, <laughs> Brian Tyler's fine. You know, uh, uh, here and he uh, he just doesn't get to shine the way he did with Iron Man three. So, yeah, just disappointing. Yeah. Um, it is. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it's just, I, this movie has been such an interesting thing to have to talk about. And I think more frustrating, honestly, than either of us wanted. Um, and, and yeah. th- which leads me to the question of what would you rate age of Ultron? Uh, uh, when I first rated it after this rewatch, I gave it a two and a half. As we wind up this conversation, I feel like I'm giving it a generous two out of five. What about you? Yeah. Uh, sadly, we're in the exact same boat. <laughs> in the sense of like, I go. had given it a two and a half as well. That's what it was, you know, before this. And it just doesn't deserve it. Um, it, there are some interesting things. There's some good things. There's some funny things. I do like some of the interactions with the Avengers themselves, you know, um, I, I, we didn't even talk about the party, which I think was great. Probably Mm -hmm. the best scene in the movie, really, other than the, the stuff that involves Hawkeye. And it's just, it's, it's not bad in the, in those areas, it's just the rest of the movie that just can't quite figure out what the heck it wants to be because there's just too many things happening and going on in the film. And it's disappointing. Um, but I also think, and this is where Joss Whedon goes off the rails because the same joke of a guy falling on top of a woman into their breasts happens again in Justice League. It's the same joke. It happens here with Natasha yes. and and um, Bruce. And in that movie, it'll happen with Wonder Woman and Flash. It's not funny yes, it either place. So it it's yeah. like, uh, anyway. So if then you were going to rank these films, John, what would you mm-hmm. rank the MCU now that we have gotten to the age this of This is what's amazing is I, I actually wrote this down so that I would remember it this time. Ooh. This is the first time in the history of anything that I actually thought, you know, I really am He's forgetting learning, it week to week. folks! Yay! 
I'm learning like Ultron, which means <laughs> I'm going to be flying out to Matt's house and blowing it up soon. Uh, Winter Soldier is number one, Iron Man 3, Guardians, Iron Man, Captain America, the first Avenger, the Incredible Hulk, Avengers, Thor, neck and neck. And I mean neck and neck for this slot. Avengers Age of Ultron and Thor the Dark World. Ultron gets the edge because Spader's doing some interesting stuff and there's some good scenes like the party scene like you mentioned. Wow. So wow. Avengers Age of Ultron, Thor the Dark World, and then once again, <laughs> like like the disowned child who burned the house down, oh, man. Iron Man 2 in the final slot. So this is going to fascinate a lot of people. Okay. Uh, of course, Winter Soldier, Iron Man, Iron Man 3, the first Avenger. Then we move to the Incredible Hulk, Guardians of the Galaxy, Avengers, Thor the Dark World, mm. Iron Man 2, Mm-mm. Thor, mm. Age of Ultron. We wow. have a new bottom. Dead last. I would rather watch Thor than Age of Ultron. Well, so would I. It's just that I happen to slot two <laughs> movies underneath Age of Ultron. So right now, so there you go. Age of Ultron has created a new basement for the Marvel Boy. Cinematic Universe. Boy, so you have created a new basement, and I'm still not quite there. <laughs> what could possibly? I know some movies what that could... I'm pretty sure are going to be your new basement. Once we get, oh, we got we got some contenders coming up. We got some contenders, but oh yeah, um, we are really excited because we are going to wrap up phase two and we're going to hit Ant Man, which is very exciting. And I love the introduction of Paul Rudd. I hope I'm not giving too much away. He's great. Uh, And uh, Hmm. then we'll take a brief hiatus as we dive back into Snyder cuts real quick, and then we will be back starting the ever long. Phase three, which will be in for the rest of next year, it feels like. Uh, And (laughs) uh, yeah, so super excited about that. I hope you've been enjoying the show. But John, if people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on, or maybe they want to talk to you about why Iron Man 2 is actually the best Marvel film, where can they find you? Well, gosh, if they want to tell me that Iron Man 2 is the best Marvel film, I don't know how well those conversations are going to go. So you can find me as Kessel Junkie online. Nobody ever connects with me. Whatever. I don't really care. Look for me over on Letterboxd. I have a lot of fun rating movies over there. And you can find me uh, over on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting two shows. The first show is House Lights, where we look at the work of directors. And we are also, you and me, Matt, we are co-hosts of a delightful Star Wars show called Aggressive Negotiations. We go off the beaten path. We're not going to talk to you about Galactic Star Cruiser or its disappointing facades. We're not going to talk about the upcoming news about who's directing what. We're going to talk to you about the deep dive stuff over there on Aggressive Negotiations. Right, Matt? That's absolutely what we're going to do, and it's a lot of fun, and I hope people will join us. Uh, you can also find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, those kind of places. Uh, you can also find me here on the network in the main 602 Club feed, where you're finding this show, doing the main 602 Club show. Uh, and I hope you'll join us. It's so much fun um, as we talk about all the fandoms we love. I'm doing a few other shows here on the network. I'm doing Warp 5, The Orb, and Literary Treks. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And 
Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I have a finished show called Owl Post I did with Drea Kaufman, and that is about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. One chapter at a time. But thank you, as always, so much for joining us. Avengers! Avengers!